today on the Wood Preacher Podcast. A forgotten prophet, a whale of a problem, and avoiding myopic thinking. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Wood Preacher Podcast. our Come Follow Me curriculum for this coming week. We'll cover both Jonah and Micah. We're going to start with Micah, the prophet that no one knows what he talks about. Odds are if you ask someone what is in the book of Micah or ask them when he might have lived, even someone who knows and loves the Bible is less likely to know about Micah. And maybe part of the reason for that is that he was a contemporary of Isaiah. He prophesied during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, He uses imagery that's almost identical to Isaiah in a couple of places, specifically uh, in Isaiah 2 with the mountain of the Lord. If we look in Micah chapter 4 and compare that to Isaiah 2, you'll recognize this immediately. It reads, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his way, and we will walk in his paths, For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, this is an important scripture, absolutely critical. We've already talked about some of the meaning um, in Isaiah, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the just the concept. Did this prophecy first come to Micah and Isaiah just kind of copied it? Or did it first come to Isaiah and maybe Micah copied that? I think this is really important to understand. Ultimately, it came from God. Both prophets copied from that source. This is important because the similarity of passages that you will see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, This isn't like people are copying off each other. This isn't something that you need to be, oh, we need to be skeptical because there are signs of plagiarism. That's nonsense. It should be viewed with the perspective that repetition emphasizes importance and links various concepts. We get things in the Book of Mormon that are written a particular way in the same English as the King James Bible, to point us to the Bible in those places. And the same with the New Testament. We get things in the Doctrine and Covenants and and the Book of Mormon that are similar to what Paul wrote. It's to help point us there and to see how it's all connected to the same source. This is also true of Micah and Isaiah. Now, 
Micah also observed the types of prophets that were popular among the people at that time, particularly before Hezekiah. Um, it was false prophets. If we look in Micah chapter 3, starting in verse 5, it reads, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace! And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Therefore, night shall be unto you that ye shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark unto you that ye shall not divine. And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. All right, these verses are important because false prophets plagued the people of Judah. Their message, as in the days of Jeremiah, peace, victory, be happy. What their message lacked was, of course, have faith, repent, live your covenants. This was exclusive to true prophets. God wanted people to live his commandments. All right, uh, additional reading. In Micah chapter 2, verse 6, it reads, Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them, that they shall not take shame. So, very clear. We have people that are commanded not to prophesy, um, and, uh, and they're, they're not embarrassed for their actions. They're not receiving the counsel. The Lord is directing not to cast pearls before swine, withholding prophecy from those who will not receive it. In other words, our ability to receive correction leads to additional prophecy. Ultimately, like many other prophets, Micah also pointed to the coming of the Messiah. We read in Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 2, it reads, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Now this is really important. This is one of the most explicit references to the coming of Christ being in Bethlehem. Keep in mind, uh, Micah lived a great deal of time after King David. This David had already come out of, of Bethlehem. This was some future ruler of Israel that would come out of Bethlehem. Undoubtedly, this would be the kind of thing that was referenced when King Herod asked his chief priests and scribes, to search the scriptures for where the Messiah would come. Uh, when, the, when the Magi from the east 
asked for his assistance. So this is very important scripture. All right, let's uh, look at another reading in Micah 6, verses 7 through 8. It reads, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O men, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. This idea, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly before God, this was used recently in General Conference by Elder Renland of the Quorum of the Twelve, discussing how it's important that when we try, uh, when we're living, that we try and live honestly with ourselves. We do justly, not to cheat but also to extend mercy to others, to try and help them and to be happy for them when they receive mercy, to love mercy and to be humble, uh, not be full of pride. The importance of the teachings of Micah has not diminished. Like Isaiah, he promises that though difficult times are inevitable, in the end, the Lord will remember and keep his covenants. All right. Jonah. Jonah is referenced in 2 Kings, in which under the reign of Jeroboam II, not Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Israel was able to extend its borders. Uh, it reads as follows. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. So that's 2 Kings fourteen twenty-three through 25. That helps us establish the historical context for Jonah. So he's living in the time of these later, uh, during the house of Jehu, the son of Nimshi. He's, uh, he's prophesying at that point in time. So the kingdoms had already divided, um, but uh, the ten tribes had not been lost yet. And at this point in time, Assyria was rising to power, and Nineveh, on the Tigris River was a great Assyrian city. Jonah received word to preach in Nineveh. And he immediately left, but not for Nineveh, to go to Tarshish. Now the scriptures are not clear on where exactly Tarshish was, but many believe that it was a naval city in what is now Spain and the Iberian Peninsula. What the scriptures are clear about this city is that it was a great naval power, produced great ships. Even Solomon had a navy 
that originated from Tarshish. One way or the other, the sea was not the route to take when going from Israel or anywhere in Canaan to Assyria. You go north over the mountains, not into the Mediterranean. So he didn't just get distracted. He tried to flee from the Lord. It didn't go the way that he planned. So we read in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. When the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them, but Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Okay, so the writer of this book is quick to point out that the Lord was speaking to Jonah in many ways. He sent storms. He caused games of chance to point to him. In other words, you cannot run from the Lord. There is no place beyond his reach. So we keep reading in verse 11. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's sake, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and caused, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows." So here we have an emphasis made that the men did not want to kill Jonah, but that the storm and Jonah himself, who knew the cause of it, instructed them to throw him over. There's a sense among all people of what is good and what is not. This isn't to say that powerful cultures can't overpower this sense to the point that, you know, a society like Carthage sacrificed their children to have a good harvest. And Ahab was willing to murder to get fields that he wanted. Uh, men of war killed and plundered. But the light of Christ is given to all men, even these men who were not Hebrews. That's important to remember. So what happens to Jonah? In verse 17, it reads, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prays in the belly of the fish, and ultimately the fish vomits him out on dry land, saving him. So he's not drowned in the middle of the Mediterranean. He's trapped in the fish. 
and uh, and he repents. He, he feels bad about what he has done. He's willing to listen to the Lord. So what does the Lord say? Jonah chapter 3 starts, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So immediately God repeats his request to Jonah, and the now penitent prophet goes to Nineveh, uh, bearing what he presumed probably would be unpopular news, imminent destruction. But the response is something that uh, Jonah didn't predict. We can read about it in Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? This is remarkable. They were concerned with the words of the Hebrew prophet, and they received counsel to repent and be better, which is what God wanted the entire time. He wasn't seeking their destruction. He wanted his sons and daughters to return unto them. Um, Jonah was not pleased with this. He was very angry um, in in uh, Jonah chapter 4, it says, And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." So Jonah's very upset here. He went on this long, perilous journey, and it feels like he accomplished nothing because God didn't do anything. He didn't destroy them like he said he was going to. Um, he identifies here the reason that he fled to begin with, and I think that's notable. He was upset that God would ask him to travel a long way to a foreign land when he thought God would just be merciful regardless of what Jonah did. So God teaches him a lesson using some plants. He prepares this gourd and it comes up and gives him some shade and relief. And he's very glad. And then the next day, there's a worm that comes and withers the gourd. And then the sun rises and there's this vehement east wind. 
and Jonah prays to die. He, he's so miserable in the heat. And, uh, and the Lord says, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? In other words, Jonah's view was myopic. He was thinking about himself. When the gourd gave him relief, he was glad. When it wasn't giving him relief, he was upset. The bigger picture was not about Jonah. Jonah was a messenger. The picture was that God loved the people. That's who the message was for. Some people spend a lot of effort trying to decide whether or not Jonah was a real person, and these events were real. Um, I mean, the narrative of the book shows that Jonah himself did not write it. It was written about Jonah, and probably sometime later. And the fantastic idea of being swallowed by a whale makes scholarly types dismiss the account entirely. For myself, I believe the story is real. Jesus Christ himself used the sign of Jonah the prophet, who spent three days in darkness, to pre predict his own death and resurrection. And sure, he could have used a fictional story or a parable, but I don't think he did in this case. Nineveh was built up with great splendor and beauty over the next few generations, featuring a huge population, beautiful gardens. Some believe the hanging gardens of Babylon are misattributed and that they were probably a creation of Sennacherib in Assyria. They're in Nineveh. After Jonah's time historically, Assyria rose to become the first real empire after the late Bronze Age collapse. I believe that God used Jonah to prepare the Assyrians, just as he kind of did with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, so that he could use them to deal with the broken covenants that he found in the northern tribes of Israel. Now, it also is probable that there's a lot more to the story than we currently have that would shed light on this, but I believe it's real that these are literal events. He was swallowed by the whale, cast him out. The most important thing that we point to in this lesson, though, is that God loves his children. Of course, the covenants that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob require some specific attention to Israel that's not seen in other places. That having been said, part of the point of that covenant was to raise up a people that would allow everyone else to also come to God. God's treasure is his sons and daughters. The degree to which we can divorce ourselves of enmity toward God and towards other men, other children of God, is the degree to which we can obtain divinity ourselves. God could have used other means besides Jonah to communicate with Nineveh and to save them. The reluctant prophet probably could have stayed in Israel and avoided spending three uncomfortable days in the maw of a fish. A less myopic view, though, shows that using the fantastic circumstances of Jonah's flight 
his salvation, the success of his ministry, and the lessons he learned from God, these things made this story worth recording and preserving. In other words, God wanted you to hear about Jonah and the whale because he wanted you to value his sons and daughters. Think about the big picture. Avoid myopic thinking when it comes to considering God's actions. Deliverance is available to all people. This includes people you might not expect. It includes you and I. And it really does pay to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. We appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher podcast. Next week, we will be looking at Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Of course, there's a ton of stuff we did not cover in this week's reading. Please study that individually and with your family. And of course, as always, fight on.